All right, uh, magnificent minds and avid listeners. Welcome back to another electrifying episode of Extra AI, your sanctuary where technology, insights, and innovation converge. Today's episode, it's not just another episode. It's a golden ticket into a world where experience, wisdom, and innovation intertwine and look through the funnel of education or the aspects of education. I'm your host, Raghu Banda, and today the tables are turned and the microphone is reversed. Yes, you're right. You heard that right. Today, I'm not the interviewer, but the interviewed. In this special episode, I have been interviewed for a school, I think, where we are discussing aspects about the education and the impact of AI. And I provide my own journey in the mesmerizing universe of AI, where a journey is embroidered with trials, triumphs, and transformations. But wait, there's more. This episode is also a heartfelt letter, I would say, a compilation of insights and reflections tailored for the radiant Gen Z, the dynamic millennials, and the emerging alpha generation. We are here connecting the dots between the enigmatic dance of codes, algorithms, and the spirited pearls of youthful aspirations and dreams. So buckle up as we traverse through time, unraveling the layers of an odyssey marked by innovations and milestones. And obviously, we'll be focusing a bit more on education, in the category of education and the different aspects around education, the impact of uh, the, the STEM fields and how AI is influencing or what is what would be the influence of AI in these different fields. As always, you'll find more information at the end of the podcast. So sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. So first question is, what got you into the AI ML field? Yeah, so Aryan, this is a great question, right? Like uh, what got you into the AI ML field or uh, artificial intelligence field? Uh, so this, uh, I have to take you back to the my studying this. Uh, historically, if you go back into the 80s and 90s, that is when I've done my uh, high school education and then 90s was when I've graduated from my uh, computer science engineering. But how did uh, this happen? My dad's uh, brother, he was in the US. Uh, he came here for 40, 50 years back and he was into aeronautical uh, uh, science and background. And then later on, a couple of my cousins came and these guys, they were, uh, at that time, um, the field was kind of moving from aeronautical engineering into the focus areas have been moving into expert systems. You might have heard about expert systems, which are predominantly focused on how you can create intelligent systems using uh, uh, the information that you have, rather than just doing procedural uh, dynamics or procedural programs. They started building intelligent systems with uh, manual if-then-else statements. That is how AI, in a way, they call uh, it's like a manual if then else. And expert systems were the first kind of uh, set of things which came into the being. And then in the early 80s, there was this XCON configurator, 
which automatically try to create some uh, uh, system where you could automatically order some parts to create a computer system. So there were these kind of things happening. And one of my cousin came to the US at that time, and he was big time into working on expert systems. This really triggered, uh, I was just a high schooler at that time. So I was looking into all these things. Uh, I had high hopes of getting into uh, some kind of an aeronautical research field, but then heard about these expert systems. And then I thought, hey, this field looks very interesting where you can uh, do some kind of analysis and build systems. I got into my engineering. Uh, so that was the reason I picked up computer science rather than mechanical engineer or chemical engineering or electronics engineering and I got into computer science. In my final year, uh, uh, I, I always wanted to do a, so I, I was reading into all these uh, expert systems and there was this uh, LISP programming at that time on how do you do this. Uh, in the final year, I wanted to do a project on AI at that time, but there were not resources and my, Professor, he said, uh, no, uh, let's not do that. Let's do it. So I ended up doing a normal payroll system project or whatever. But I ended up writing a small, short white paper. We, we wouldn't call white paper in those days, but a sh short research paper. I don't even know where it is, but I think it should be in one of the, this, in, our, in our school back, uh, undergrad school back in India. So that's how my entry got into this field. Later on, I got into... Uh, working in Bangalore for Wipro Systems, and before that, some uh, Indian Institute of Science professors, they had a startup, uh, so I was working with them. Then I came to the U.S., but I always had this intuition where I would want to get into this field of AI, of uh, taking historical information and how you can make predictions. Then after my a couple of decades, I got an opportunity when my current company, SAP, they were trying, and they are a huge enterprise application firm. Now they wanted to make inroads into uh, using building intelligent applications. This is when it happened, like early 2011, 2012. So I got an opportunity at that time. People were not very much inclined to get into this, and there was a project, and that's how I got into that. Okay, very nice. Yeah. I also am interested in aeronautic also. It's a <laughs> Beautiful. Um, good one to hear. Yeah. Okay. So I'll move on to the next one. Sure. So the first part, you probably um, went into it a little bit, but what was your education like? And do you think the U.S. system is up to standards in creating engineering and science prospects? Yeah, so this is a, I would say a tricky question, right? Like we always think there are a lot of immigrants coming into this country, which means mm -hmm. that, hey, are we not equipped? Are we not preparing enough uh, uh, people here in handling all these uh, things that we have? But see, that is the reason I say it's a tricky question. The education system in US, from what I know, uh, Kind of in the elementary school phase, I think it's very relaxed. But from then on, when you get into the middle school, I think there is a bump. And from then on, when you get into high school, there is a huge bump. But the good thing that I've noticed, uh, my elder daughter, she's just got into high school. So when I keep looking into that, and of course, maybe when I studied 30 years back compared to 
when my daughters are studying now, I see one thing very clear in the education system in the U.S. compared to the education system in India. In, in India, I have noticed that there is a lot of emphasis on understanding the concepts and understanding the theory of how we do, which is good. Uh, but the practical applications of how do you use it? Uh, for example, you are a high school student, I know, like senior uh, senior student. But the options are the thing, are the way you think, and how do you create these uh, projects uh, in real and real time applications? That happens a lot more here in the U.S. than in India. Things have changed in India in, in uh, with the practical applications being increased in the education systems. Uh, but having said that, when you get into the undergrad phase, in the undergrad phase, when I was doing education in India, the practical applications were low. We were always focused on theoretical and conceptual applications. And the practical applications get into spa uh, space when we got into the master's program. But here, I feel that uh, the practical applications is always there. Uh, when you are into the undergrad, uh, when you are in the education system or education space. But having said that, it's always up to the uh, student or, uh, or the parent of how they design and drive their, uh, uh, their focus or how they kind of define their focus. So this is where I would say it is a huge difference. The student has much uh, liberty in, uh, in focusing and okay nice but would you say that um you would need the theoretical part um to use to kind of use a, pra a practical application like would you need both of them you will definitely need both of them so this is where uh i would still think the aspects of uh, education from the undergrad kind of uh, space in US is a little better compared to what you have in, in, in India or in other countries, other countries, because uh, here we do have uh, the theoretical concepts as well as uh, practical applications. The practical application of how do you present is a bit more uh, available. So you could understand in real time how you can use it uh, in a practical application. So that is the reason you still see people uh, flocking around here, like uh, coming into this country. Because uh, universities have a lot of resources and tools to not only uh, help the students in understanding the theoretical concepts, but also using in the practical, uh, how do you use it in practical? But this, again, gets back to the question, it's always up to the student how they learn and apply these practical applications. There might be students who are not even focused on understanding the theoretical concepts or doing the practical implications. Uh, because um, you, it is left up to the student because the measurement is not happened in that way. Whereas in countries like India, you are always measured. So people, students work for the sake of measurement and for the sake of grades. With, rather, uh, rather than here, Though there is emphasis on grades and measurement, the, there is mm -hmm. more focus on passion and how do I use it in real life? That is what I see a bit of a difference. Got it. Okay. All right.
So I'll move to the next one. Mm-hmm. Are there enough prospects to hire each year in your field? Um, like too many or too little? Um, to your knowledge, what what do you think? So let me say, uh, I will uh, go a bit more deep dive into this question. When you say my field, I wouldn't want to consider just as the IT field, but I would like to focus on the field of AI, if uh, if that is what you wanted me to. Yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. uh, that's good. Okay, so yes, uh, there is, uh, there are. I wouldn't say there are enough uh, people available. But there is a lot of prospects, right? Like the field of AI is just catching up. Like I've mentioned, 10 years back or 8 to 10 years back, I got the opportunity to get into this uh, AI field where I've been working with SAP, SAP's AI journey. But it was still just the technology folks or the enterprise applications and to some extent the consumer applications, application firms which are focused on it. But the common man still didn't understand about AI until last year when this uh, beautiful application called ChatGPT came into picture, which is where now even the common man is talking about AI. So which means that the understandability of how AI can be used in these different applications is just about coming. So which means uh, there are a huge impact and there is a huge huge array of applications available out there but to get there you need to have your workforce not only the workforce but also your education and the students and the education force uh, to be trained well enough to get the training even to get the training even a step if you take a step back creating the awareness so that awareness has just been created now. That awareness is there. Now the next step, uh, okay. successive step would be that, how do you like train? So that is where, so I would say there are a lot of prospects, but again, you will have to train your people, uh, not only from at the workforce level, but also at the education level. Got it, okay. Yeah, so this one leads into the next question which is mm-hmm. that the BLS reports that unemployment rates for mathematicians, mechanical engineers, and chemists, material scientists are at all-time highs. Have you noticed such trends or what kind of influence has a pandemic had? So this oh, is... Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you get your field too. Yes, yes. This is, this is uh, a great question. I would say COVID-19 pandemic definitely affected various professions, I would say, in different, different ways. Uh, Obviously, fields like you mentioned, mathematics, mechanical engineering, or material science and chemical engineering, obviously, all these fields, and also the field of AI, got impacted in different ways, right? Mathematicians, I think, pre-COVID, it used to be that uh, they especially, most of the mathematicians engaged in academia and research, they have enjoyed a very stable landscape. But now after post-COVID, the way you design your uh, study programs or uh, the educational institutions, they have to design the programs in a different way, how you can adapt to remote learning or hybrid learning. Even I have an example. I was doing my executive MBA during this time in, at NCR Business School. 
Uh, obviously, halfway through the program, we were hit by COVID pandemic. Educational institutions, not only uh, normal education institutions, but even prestigious schools like NCIAD and all, they were not equipped at that time. But they have invested enough resources and they quickly were able to adapt to that. The same thing uh, with mechanical engineers. I think mechanical engineers, I would say, uh, and material science engineers, I think they were affected a bit more because they were these were the people who were obviously hit with these closures of these different factories or other things. Uh, uh, there were huge disruptions, but they have quickly come back. Uh, the field of AI and the field of uh, chemical engineering, I would say, chemical engineering, obviously, uh, I think prospered to some extent, I would say, because they because of uh, their connection to the pharmaceutical uh, and chemical industries, right? Like there is this huge uh, boost in the pharmaceutical sector due to the rush for vaccine right. development. And field of AI, that it's all digital, uh, mm -hmm. there was a huge impact on AI field and they have really, I would say, prospered or used this time to get better. So it's it, it depends all on the nature of the field itself, basically. It depends on the nature of the field itself, but also how, uh, but each of these fields, the way they reacted to the COVID pandemic, uh, obviously mathematics is the backbone of uh, when you talk about data science and how mm -hmm. data science is a backbone for AI. So without yeah. having a basic uh, background in uh, mathematics, you cannot get to the next levels. But the institutions, mathematics is one of the backbone or uh, the academic institutions are the ones who use it the most. And they have, I think many, many academic institutions they are quickly getting back to terms on how they can leverage this post-pandemic, which is where you have remote learning and hybrid learning facilities or uh, probabilities. Obviously, you have to reskill your uh, uh, staff, whether it is for the mm -hmm. educational institutions or for the enterprise uh, institutions. Um, so that is all happening now at a very fast pace. Okay. So my next one is uh, a bit... Um... Um, I have examples mm -hmm. and um, there the five definitions of shortage that are most um, that are uh, I, I read this paper and this these are the the, the primary five. Mm -hmm. So the first one would be production is lower than um, the recent past. Uh, for example, steel. Mm -hmm. um, second would be competitor share total production uh, it's growing faster than us. Um, mm -hmm. Third would be production is lower than what people doing the producing would like. Mm -hmm. Fourth would be less less is produced than the nation is deemed to need. Um, mm -hmm. Like you were talking about uh, uh, the education workforce. And mm -hmm. finally, production is not meeting market demand. So which ones which ones would you um, which uh, have you kind of seen or are the most important? Do you think? So this is a beautiful question. I would say. Because if you see each of these questions are attacking or addressing different transitions uh, when you talk from 70s to 80s or 80s to 90s and all. Uh, mm -hmm. If you see steel is a great example. Uh, I think this was, uh, if you go to 70s and 80s, I think this is where uh, the 
I would say the developed countries like US and the West, they were doing a lot more steel production at that time. But later on, the other countries caught up. And obviously, for the big corporations, they were investing in the other countries where they could make more profits. So that's how things have been transitioning. The same thing next happened with automotive manufacturing. And then later on with uh, semiconductor and the chip manufacturing. So the way it is being transitioned is that as and when the nations are becoming prospering, uh, they would want to kind of send this manufacturing or the low-skilled jobs to the other countries where they are still in development. But now, with the advent of uh, uh, the fourth uh, revolution, like the IT revolution, right, the uh, digital revolution, yeah. which happened in late, I think, early 2010s, now the whole thing has changed. With the IT revolution or the digital revolution, you no longer need to be at a particular space and things have become global. So you right. could work anywhere across the globe and reap the benefits, which is where now you see, all, and, and of course, uh, the other countries are also catching up with the West. So I would say yeah. uh, in this context, uh, rather than getting into all these things, I would say, I would go with the last option, but I would again say that, uh, which is where we should still, we, we, we think that if you pick up any field, uh, production is not meeting the required market demand, which is where it is driving. Uh, that is where uh, I would say the shortage is not, you pick up any particular field, but now if you focus on the field of AI or the field of digital transformations, there is a lot of requirement, but the production of the resources or the production of the uh, uh, enabled uh, workforce is not reaching the required marketing demand. That is what we are seeing. But with the globalization impact, uh, it is being addressed to some extent, but not to a great extent. Okay. So yeah, the, the paper also uh, agreed that the fifth one would be the most important because the other four kind of create the fifth problem. Right, right. And the other four kind of transitioned because we have this mm -hmm. electronic phase, uh, like I've started, started with the steel industry, automotive industry, manufacturing industry, electronic component industry. All these, we have seen this transition and the other countries are catching up. And now the, with the IT revolution and the digital globalization, and now with AI, the game is changing. But again, you still have to upskill the community or upskill the workforce or upskill the education institutions and the students. That is where I think uh, there's a huge, there's a lot of gap. I think it will be filled in in the years to come. Okay. The next question is uh, something you covered like really briefly. Um, in the same paper, I found that the number of PhDs granted in the U.S. to non-citizens have tripled in the past 20 years. Meanwhile, the, the number granted to U.S. citizens has like a steady um, like 15 to 20% growth. So how important would you say this kind of data is? So for this, I would like to answer it in a bit different way. Let me put it in a different uh, hat and answer. 
Sure. West, uh, U.S. and the West, obviously, uh, the rest of the world always looks upon to U.S. and the West on new innovations, which means mm -hmm. that 90% of the jobs or 90% of the things that you have here, I think, are very well matured or very, you are more into this innovation phase. So to get a postgraduate degree or a PhD here in a country like U.S. is much more harder because you have to prove that you have done something really better than the rest. Uh, so obviously, nice. this is where uh, you will have, uh, and there is a lot of innovations happening. And the, and the population of U.S., if you compare with the other countries, obviously, it's not that high. Uh, and, the, uh, uh, and U.S. has the skilled immigrant program which will obviously get to a stage where you have the influx of U.S. is, it is, is a, in a fortunate state to accept those skilled immigrants uh, to let them in the country through this uh, immigration program, which means that obviously you have more number of skilled people coming in here. And that is that will definitely tilt towards having more people uh, having these PhD uh, PhDs granted for non-citizens compared to a citizen. And many of these people, I think nowadays, because of the globalization impact, some of these people who are getting these PhDs, they're also returning back to their home countries. And that is where you see a lot of other countries like India and China, uh, and Philippines and Brazil, all the BRIC countries, they're also uh, gaining in prominence and they are also improving a lot because they are also having people getting back to their countries. So to answer your question, yes, it would always be that in a far developed country, you will have lesser number of uh, uh, citizens having PhDs than other countries because you will always have the influx of skilled immigrants getting into these developed countries like the US and the West will be always higher. So that is how the numbers would, uh, uh, when, you, when, you, when you do these uh, numbering, that's how uh, the stats would show. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's just that immigrants um, in general, they come here already with the, with the level, certain level of education. So mm -hmm. that, that's a, a reason why, because most people come here with undergrads or something like that right right because even their basic benchmark itself is higher compared to the other people who are local citizens even though it's a developed country right the benchmark itself mm -hmm. getting into these universities is higher so obviously you'll see a lot more people uh, graduating uh, with phds and it is good yeah. for it, it is good for the other countries as well as uh, uh, the uh, for the global globalization of uh, uh, IT or globalization in general. Right. Okay, so the next one, we'll go back to your field. Um, I'm basically asking what kind of tasks or problems do you put um, machine learning to tackle? That's a, that's a very broad question, I would say. And then now that we are into the field of AI and ML, I would give I will take a little time in explaining this, right? Like we have, um, there are a lot of common applications uh, where okay. AI and ML can definitely 
really make big sense of uh, how you can improvise. Data analysis and predictions is one of these fields where you can process with the help of AI and ML, uh, you can process large amounts of uh, unprocessed data. Uh, and then, um, because with the with with the probability with the, the solutions that you have, like with AI and ML algorithms, you can definitely interpret this data much faster pace. And now technology has improved so much that the compute speed has increased. With all these, you can identify patterns at a faster pace and do informed mm -hmm. decision making. Then, now let us continue to the next aspect of. Uh, the first thing is just mere data processing, right? That is higher. The second thing is uh, now you can go to the natural language processing or NLP, which is where you see applications like ChatGPT and generative AI coming up. Understanding mm -hmm. and generating human language. So I type in some question uh, in Google. Even today, if you see Google or Bing chat, uh, it has been improvised a lot. So I type in and the next few words are already being generated. The AI models can process and understand much faster what you want. So this is one other thing where examples are your chatbots, sentiment analysis, translation services, wherein currently you can go to a restaurant in Europe or any other country where you even don't even know the language, but you can very easily converse. Uh, for example, like a couple of months back, we've been to Cancun where we've been talking to the, uh, the Uber driver. It was easy to converse with him because it could take Google translation and he could easily understand. Then next is right. uh, we can go to image and voice recognition. You can identify different patterns and features in image, images and voice data where the AI algorithms can definitely recognize patterns. They can classify all these different images and understand. Predominant uh, things are like, you can take the very easier example of uh, face recognition on your iPhone. Uh, your iPhone will be locked only to your face or the face that it is attached to. So these are, and then there are a lot of speech to text services. You can speak in using into your WhatsApp and uh, it can type in the text. Yeah. These are some of the things. And mm. now a lot more, when you talk about automation, repetitive or time-consuming tasks. This is where enterprise application firms like SAP, Oracle, Workday, and all these uh, firms, they're making huge strides. Like uh, we have these different enterprise applications, like whether it is manufacturing or procurement, where there is a mundane task of uh, performing some uh, task. Many of these things, now you can create like a, uh, RPA bots uh, and then help uh, augment the business process of the business application so that the end user of that, whether it is a shop floor executive, shop floor employee, or a customer representative who is using these can benefit a lot. Then now if you continue to healthcare, healthcare is one field, it's gonna be tremendously impacted and uh, advantages by using these AI technologies. But again, you should be careful here because this is where uh, a minor uh, problem or a minor uh, hallucination in the predicted results can create 
different uh, myriad of problems. So you should be careful in how do you do, but there has been huge impact on healthcare diagnostics, starting with radiology, imaging analysis, or predictive analytics for patient outcomes. Then you go to transport, transportation and logistics. Transportation and logistics is going to be impacted in a bigger way. Uh, you have different trucks delivering goods from different locations. You can use AI technologies with sensor-driven uh, 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 items where you can read different kinds of data. Data not only about earlier uh, truck routes, about how they have done, but also the sensor mm -hmm. data and different and, and also visual data. And also there are now sensors which talk about the roads that these trucks are traveling, which is where you can do not only a truck DNA, but also a surface road DNA. So there are a lot of information, like you are getting data from uh, sensor data, the streaming data, the IoT data and all that. And you could do a lot of uh, predictions. And this is helping big time in, for cars like Tesla and all these uh, uh, who are working on autonomous vehicles uh, and more. Yeah. Then a couple more I would like to give uh, because this is where it's very important. Uh, personalized recommendations. We always we already see services like Netflix and uh, Amazon or other streaming services give personalized recommendations about watching movies and other things. But yeah. this is going to impact very big way in e-commerce and other things. Okay. Then a few other things like fraud detection, financial fraud, and other things. So I can go on and on, but there are a lot of things going on in this space. Uh, one important thing that you need to note is there are two big areas, right? One is the consumer applications where you're directly working with the consumers. And the other is the enterprise applications where you work with your, uh, you work with a firm where they also have to take care about their customers. So this is where you have two sets of uh, a hidden problem, not only the customer, but you also have to understand your customer's customer. So this is where AI and ML is mm. going to be even more important. But yeah, I didn't, uh, I, I know I wanted to give a high level overview, but I think these are, there's a lot coming in there. Okay, yeah, nice. And my next question kind of specifies um, from the previous, so I read, this is from another paper. Um, mm -hmm. I had three. So at the University of Technology, Sydney, scientists mm -hmm. are developing machine learning algorithms to analyze and predict skills shortages in the job market. Would you consider these kinds of efforts productive? And could we target STEM fields with such algorithms? That's a, yeah, that's a very, very good question, right? Like you have uh, absolutely, absolutely, when we talk about STEM technology, right? The science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, these fields mm -hmm. can immensely benefit from these different analysis and uh, predictions related to skills shortages. There are different mm -hmm. things that you can understand, starting with data collection, gather extensive data on the current employment trends or emerging technologies and the educational output that is going into this. Then analyze these different models by employing, analyze all this data, employing different machine learning models and identify the patterns. 
and then use these predictive algorithms to forecast the future trends. Then you get into the key focus areas like emerging technologies of like how innovations like AI or biotechnology or renewable energy are shaping these different skills and how you can create focused education and training so that you can focus a bit more, uh, uh, like examine the output of the current education institutions versus what is the industry demand to identify the gaps. And finally, uh, getting into the outcome and benefits, right? So provide a detailed forecast of the skills that are in high demand and helping the educational institutions trying to fill in that gap or the training institutions. Obviously, there will be a lot of policy making also to have to, you have to support the STEM education. And typical applications, I would say, would be your educational institutions, corporate training, government policies. These are bigger things where you can focus on. So typically, the four big steps, I would say, is that how do you implement? The step one would be gather data from different kinds of information, job portals, academic institutions, industry reports, understand what are the current demand for STEM skills. Step two, employ these different AI ML algorithms to analyze data, identify the trends and patterns that are in the skills demand. Step three is now predict the future skill shortages by analyzing all these different technological advancements and how you can correlate with the current educational output. And finally, in step four, now you share these insights with the educational institutions, the corporates that I was talking about, the governments and the policymakers so that they can adapt and they can forecast the skills demand and they can also fine tune or they can design programs in such a way. So keeping all this in mind, but one important thing that we also need to focus on is about ethics and bias and also the data privacy. So these are the things that you will need to really look into. But yeah, there's a huge, tremendous potential that you could do. Okay. All right. So next one is from your experience, are STEM fields incentivized enough for students to pursue? Can we aid students through the process since engineering and science are extremely demanding fields? So now getting back to my old question, uh, earlier question, right? Like I was said, mm -hmm. like how these, uh, if you can go back to these four steps and understand like, uh, gathering the data, the first step, employing these AI ML algorithms. Once you do the first two, then you can see the step four is where education, see first thing is gathering the data. Second thing is employing AI ML algorithms. Third thing is uh, predicting the future skill shortages. Once you do all these three, the incentive is automatically there. Step four is where the educational institutions or the government institutions or the corporates can design programs in such a way that they can train the students or the employees or the government workers or policy makers design programs in such a way. So the incentive is one, better society, better AI awareness programs. Obviously, second thing is that you can also uh, make better, uh, you can design your systems in such a way that your courses are much better positioned. And obviously there is a business impact as well. You can make more money. I think end of the day, I think educational institutions, though they focus on 
educating the uh, youth, uh, they also have to make money. So the and then the corporates yeah. as well. In a way, it, it, in a way that the incentive is that yeah, you're creating a better society, a better education force, but also mm -hmm. you're designing to the future, and also you're creating profits by your institutions. Right. Okay. So my last question is, from your knowledge, would it be more effective to stimulate STEM industry with government funds or to privatize them? This is a very interesting question. Obviously, it will have a mix of uh, uh, this. Uh, when Again, I'll go back to those uh, four things, right? Incentivizing, the, the four steps, if you go and look into when the first three steps, when you gather enough data, when you employ the algorithms in step two, and then you predict the shortage and uh, design programs in such a way, obviously, private yeah. institutions uh, would definitely create programs in such a way that they can make uh, really focused programs and they can definitely move at a much faster pace. Um, yeah. With the government institutions, the, the with, with the government policies and government funds, the problem will be things will be a bit slower because you have to go through a lot of regulations. Again, I do not want to keep out the fact that regulations are to be needed. So that is the reason uh, it will be a mix. Uh, you will have a mix of this. Uh, to answer your question, I would say uh, these are... Uh, uh, the capital, the, the industries uh, definitely will uh, have to focus a bit more uh, and the privatization of these will move in a faster pace. Uh, but having okay. said that, the policies with the governments as well uh, will put in efforts and you put the um, taxpayers' money in there. And of course, you will also have to design policies. I would say it will be a 70-30 kind of a thing. 70% um, more focused on the uh, private institutions with uh, 25 to 30% with the government funds as well. Okay. But at the end, it's it's kind of they they support each other. They're yes. like both necessary. Yes, both are necessary. How do you support each other? Because the big, big thing will be ethics, and data bias and data privacy. Yeah. These are the three things where government uh, programs and uh, uh, these uh, policymakers will come and play a big role. The other aspects definitely will be pumped in and be pushed forward with, when we talk about technology, when we talk about these algorithms and this computing resources and other things. That is where the private institutions, definitely the private uh, corporates will can run much, much faster and invest much faster because there is an incentive of they can make more money. But yeah. for governments, it is that they also need to have a harmonious uh, country or a harmonious community and how they can create that uh, harmony and they can create a just environment uh, where we talk a lot about equity, equality, quality and merit. This is where uh, there should be a fine balance. Okay. So yeah, these uh, these are all the questions I had. So 
Um, if you'd like to uh, finish with anything, then I'd be happy to so, hear it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would uh, 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 encourage and I would like to inspire the current youth, uh, the students mm -hmm. that have put more emphasis not on the, uh, this is what I keep saying, right? Like now with uh, all these AI-assisted tools out there, uh, even when you are given some essay or some question, you could always, you could always get to the answer faster. So you could always, there is always a possibility to go and cheat and get the answer faster. But yeah. that wouldn't help in the long run. It is okay to find, go and find the answer, but also understand the process of how you reach there with uh, by understanding the nitty-gritty details behind that. And now you've got a lot of tools when you talk about AI-assisted tools. There are this prompt engineering, which is a big thing which is happening, where you can... Uh, you, you are provided the answer by these tools, but you could also uh, ask uh, intriguing questions and understand how you came up to this answer. So it's more important that the journey is more important rather than the end result. Uh, and of course, uh, it, not only education institutions, even corporates are not yet there of how you can measure the journey compared to the outcome. But that is where we are all getting the uh, we are getting to and i would urge uh, students or the education and even the corporates that we need to focus on the journey rather than the outcomes and if you can provide uh, proper if you can define the outcome in a better way even the journey will be far better and so and then you do not even need to worry about ethical ai systems so there is all this uh, uh, thinking about a dystopian future when ai comes into play no, but it all depends on how you can uh, uh, define the outcome. What is the outcome that you're providing, whether it is for the student or whether it is for the AI ML bots. So I would want urge or uh, focus on how you can um, put your efforts on understanding the journey, understanding the problem, how you're solving it. Well said, okay. All right, uh, let us wrap up this special episode. As you might have noticed, today wasn't just about AI, codes, or innovations. It was a communication of past learnings, present endeavors, and future aspirations. A beacon for the energetic Gen Z, the inventive millennials, and the emerging alphas, radiating the message that in the realm of AI, the only boundaries are those we conceive. I'm humbled to have you, our esteemed listeners, accompany me in unwrapping the layers of my AI odyssey. Your engagement, your curiosity and enthusiasm are the invisible threads weaving this tapestry of collective exploration and learning. But remember, as I always say, every sunset is a prelude to a new dawn. So as we encapsulate this chapter or this episode, Let's remain buoyant with anticipation for the myriad of unraveling narratives awaiting us in the upcoming episodes. As always, you can find a humongous amount of other episodes if you can go 
onto my website, extraai.com, xtraai.com, and you can search up the different episodes in the different domains in the realm of AI. As always, you can reach out to me on my social media channels, uh, my LinkedIn handle, Raghu Banda, or my X handle, RK Banda. As always, keep sending those interesting feedback and interesting questions my way. Stay engaged, stay curious, and stay tuned. The future is not a distant star, but a canvas of uncharted possibilities waiting for us to seize, explore, and transform. On Extra AI, every voice, every insight, and every revelation is not just heard, but cherished. Until next time, this is Raghubanda signing off with a heart brimming with gratitude and eyes that are set on the horizons of untapped potentials. Happy predicting the future with AI technologies. Thank you and bye-bye now.